0: Chapter One of The Poverty of Philosophy by Karl Marx, translated by Harry Quelch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Traven Leroy, Ottawa, Canada. Chapter One: A Scientific Discovery. Section One: Opposition of Utility Value to Exchange Value. The capacity possessed by all products, natural or industrial to serve the subsistence of man is specially described as utility value, the capacity they have of being given in exchange for each other as exchange value. How does utility value become exchange value? The generation of the idea of value in exchange has not been noted by the economists with sufficient care. It is important for us to halt here, since, among the objects of which I have need, many are found in nature, Only in very small quantities, or in some cases not at all. I am forced to aid in the production of what I want, and, as I cannot turn my hand to so many things, I propose to other men, my collaborators in different functions, to cede to me a portion of their products in exchange for mine. Proudhon, Volume 1, Chapter 2. Mr. Proudhon proposes to himself to, before all, explain to us the double nature of value, the distinction in value, the process which makes exchange value of utility value. It is important for us to halt with Mr. Proudhon at this act of transubstantiation. This is how this act is accomplished, according to our author. A large number of products are not found in nature, they are found at the end of industry. Suppose his needs exceed the spontaneous production of nature, man is forced to have recourse to industrial production. What is this production in the supposition of Mr. Proudhon? What is its origin? A single man experiencing the want of a large number of things cannot turn his hand to so many things. To have so many wants to satisfy supposes so many things to produce. There are no products without production. To have so many things to produce presupposes more than the hand of a single man already assisting in production. But, from the moment that you suppose more than one hand assisting in production, you have already supposed a whole system of production based on the subdivision of labour. Thus the need, such as Mr. Proudhon supposes it, itself presupposes the whole subdivision of labour. In supposing the subdivision of labour, you have exchange, and consequently exchange value. It would have been just as well to have supposed exchange value in the first place but Mr. Proudhon prefers to make the circuit. Let us follow him in all his detours, to always return to the point of departure. To leave the state of things in which each produces solitarily, and to arrive at exchange, I address myself, says Mr. Proudhon, to my collaborators in various functions. Then, it seems, I have some collaborators who all have various functions, without I and all the others. In order to arrive at such a state of things, Always, according to the supposition of Mr. Proudhon, having abandoned the solitary and unsocial position of Robinson Crusoe. The collaborators and the diverse functions, the division of labor, and the exchange which it indicates, are all existing already. To summarize, I have wants based upon the division of labor and on the exchange of commodities. In supposing these wants, Mr. Proudhon finds that he has supposed exchange, exchange value, of which he precisely proposes to quote, note the generation with more care than the other economists. End quote. Mr. Proudhon could just as well have inverted the order of things without by so doing inverting the justness of his conclusions. To explain exchange value, there must be exchange. To explain exchange, there must be a division of labor. To explain the division of labour, there must be wants which necessitate the division of labour. To explain these wants, it is necessary to suppose them, which is not to deny them, contrary to the first axiom of Mr. Proudhon's prologue, To suppose God is to deny him. Prologue, page 1. How does Mr. Proudhon, for whom the division of labour is supposed, known? Take this to explain exchange value, which for him is always the unknown. A man sets out to propose to other men, his collaborators, in various functions, to establish exchange and to make a distinction between use value and exchange value. In accepting this proposed distinction, the collaborators have left to Mr. Proudhon no other care than to take account of the fact, to mark, to note in his treatise of political economy, the generation of the idea of value. But he owes it to us always to explain the generation of this proposition, to tell us, finally, how this single, solitary man, this Robinson Crusoe, has had suddenly the idea of making to his collaborators a proposition of this kind, and how his collaborators have been led to accept it without any protest whatever. Mr. Proudhon does not enter into these genealogical details. He simply gives the fact of exchange a kind of historical cachette in presenting it under the form of a motion, which a third party has made, tending to establish exchange. That is a sample of the historical and descriptive method of Mr. Proudhon, who professes a superb disdain for the historical and descriptive method of Adam Smith and Ricardo. Exchange has its own history, it has passed through different phases. There was a time, as in the Middle Ages, when only the superfluity, the excess of production over consumption, was exchanged. There was, again, a time when not only the superfluity, but all the products, the whole of industrial existence, entered into commerce, in which the whole production depended entirely upon exchange. How are we to explain this second phase of exchange, saliable value at its second power? Mr. Proudhon would be prepared with an answer. Admit that a man has proposed to other men, his collaborators in various functions, to raise saleable value to its second power. Lastly, there comes a time when all that men have regarded as inalienable becomes objects of exchange, of traffic, and can be disposed of. It is the time in which even the things which until then had been communicated, but never exchanged, given, but never sold, acquired, but never bought virtue, love, opinion, science, conscience, etc., where all at last enter into commerce. It is the period of general corruption, of universal venality, or, to speak in terms of political economy, the time when everything moral or physical, having become a saleable commodity, is conveyed to the market to be appraised at its proper value. How can we explain this new and last phase of exchange, saleable value at its third power? Mr Proudhon would have an answer already. Put it that a person has proposed to some other person his collaborators in various functions to make of virtue, love, etc. a saleable value, to raise exchange value to its third and last power. We thus see that the historical and descriptive method of Mr Proudhon suffices for everything, it answers to everything, it explains everything. If it is above all a question of explaining historically the generation of an economic idea, he supposes a man who proposes to other men, his collaborators in various functions, that they should accomplish the act of generation, and all is said. Henceforth we accept the generation of exchange value as an accomplished fact, it only remains now to explain the relation of exchange value to utility value listen to mr Proudhon. quote the economists have very well explained the double character of value but what they have not set out with equal clearness is its contradictory nature it is here that our criticism begins it is a small matter to have signalized in utility value and exchange value this astonishing contrast in which the economists are accustomed to see nothing but the most simple matter. It is necessary to show that this pretended simplicity hides a profound mystery which it is our duty to penetrate. In technical terms, use value and exchange value are in inverse ratio the one to the other." If we have grasped Mr. Proudhon's idea, here are the four points he proposes to establish. 1. Utility value and exchange value form an astonishing contrast. They are in opposition to each other. 2. Utility value and exchange value are in inverse ratio the one to the other, in contradiction. 3. The economists have neither seen nor known either the opposition or the contradiction. 4. The criticism of Mr. Proudhon begins at the end. We also, we will commence at the end and in order to clear the economists from the accusation of mr proudhon we will hear what two economists of some importance have to say sismondi it is the opposition between value in use and exchange value to which commerce has reduced all things etc etude volume two page one sixty two brussels edition lauderdale in general national wealth utility value diminishes in proportion as individual fortunes increase by the augmentation of saleable value and to the extent that these are reduced by the diminution of this value the first generally increases end quote. inquiries into the nature and origin of public wealth Upon the opposition between use-value and exchange-value, Sismondi has based his principle theory that the diminution of the revenue is in proportion to the increase of production. Lauderdale has based his system on the theory of the inverse ratio of the two kinds of value, and his doctrine was so popular at the time of Ricardo that the latter could speak of it as of a thing generally known. Quote, it is through confounding the ideas of value and wealth, or riches, that it has been asserted that by diminishing the quantity of commodities, that is to say of the necessaries, conveniences and enjoyments of human life, riches may be increased, quote. Ricardo, Principles of Political Economy We have just seen that the economists before Mr. Proudhon have signalized the profound mystery of opposition and contradiction. Let us now see how, in his turn, Mr. Proudhon explains this mystery after The Economist's. The exchange value of a product falls in proportion as the supply increases. In other terms, the greater the abundance of products relatively to the demand, the lower its exchange value or its price falls, and vice versa, the smaller the supply relatively to the demand, the higher the exchange value or the price of the product rises. In other terms, The greater the scarcity of the products offered relatively to the demand, the dearer they are. The exchange value of a product depends on its abundance or its scarcity, but always in relation to the demand. Suppose a most rare product, one unique of its kind, if you will. This unique product would be more than abundant if it were not wanted at all. On the other hand, suppose a product multiplied by millions. It will be always scarce so long as it does not meet the demand that is to say if it is in too great demand these are mere truisms but it is necessary to reproduce them here in order to make mr proudhon's mysteries clearly understood therefore in following the principle to its ultimate consequences we come to this conclusion the most logical in the world that the things which are most necessary as articles of use and whose quantity is infinite can be had for nothing and those of which the utilities nil and which are extremely scarce will have an inestimable price. To increase the difficulty, actual price does not admit these extremes. On the one side, no human product ever attains the infinite in magnitude. On the other, the most scarce things have need of some degree of utility in order to be possessed of any value. Use value and exchange value are thus fatally chained to each other, although by their nature they continually tend to exclude each other. End quote. Volume one, page thirty nine. What is it which adds to the difficulty of Mr. Proudhon? It is simply that he has forgotten the demand, and that a thing can only be scarce or abundant according to its demand. Demand, once set aside, he assimilates exchange value to scarcity and use value to abundance. Practically in saying that the things of which the utility is nil and which are extremely scarce will have an inestimable price, he simply says that exchange value is nothing but scarcity. Extreme scarcity and utility nil is pure scarcity. Inestimable price is the maximum of exchange value, it is pure exchange value. He puts these two terms in equation. Then exchange value and scarcity are equivalent terms in arriving at these pretended extreme consequences mr Proudhon finds in effect that he has pushed two extremes not the things but the terms which express them and in that he demonstrates his rhetoric rather than his logic he finds once more his first hypotheses in all their nakedness when he believes that he has discovered new consequences Thanks to the same process, he succeeds in identifying use value with pure abundance. After having put in equation exchange value and scarcity, utility value and abundance, Mr. Proudhon is astonished not to find utility value in scarcity and exchange value, nor exchange value in abundance and utility value. And in seeing that actual practice does not admit of these extremes, he can do no other than believe in the mystery. There is for him inestimable price, because there are no buyers, and he will never find them while he continues to exclude demand. From another side, the abundance of Mr. Proudhon seems to be something spontaneous. He all at once forgets that there are people who produce, and that it is to their interest never to lose sight of the demand. If not, how can Mr. Proudhon have been able to say that the things which are very useful must be very cheap, or even cost nothing? He ought to have concluded, on the contrary, that it is necessary to restrict abundance to production of very useful things, if one wished to raise their price, their value, in exchange. The old vine growers of France, in asking for a law prohibiting the planting of fresh vines, the Dutch in burning the spices of Asia, in uprooting the clove trees in the Malays, wish simply to reduce abundance in order to raise the exchange value. So the society of the Middle Ages, in limiting by law the number of associates whom a single master could employ, and in limiting the number of instruments he could use, acted on the same principle. See Anderson, History of Commerce. After having represented abundance as use value and scarcity as exchange value, nothing more easy than to demonstrate that abundance and scarcity are in inverse ratio. Mr. Proudhon identifies use value with supply and exchange value with demand. To make the antithesis still more clear, he substitutes other terms by putting value of choice instead of exchange value. Here then, the struggle has changed its ground, and we have on one side utility, use value supply, on the other choice, exchange value demand. These two powers oppose the one to the other, who will reconcile them? What can be done to bring them into accord? Is it possible for us only to establish between them a point of comparison? Certainly, cries Mr. Proudhon. There is one. It is choice. The price which will result from this struggle between supply and demand, between utility and choice, will not be the expression of eternal justice. Mr. Proudhon proceeds to develop this antithesis, in my character, the free purchaser, I am the judge of what I want, judge of the convenience of the article, judge of the price I am willing to put on it. On the other hand, in your quality of free producer, you are master of the means of production, and in consequence, you have the power to reduce your cost of production, end quote. Volume 1, page 42. And as demand or exchange value is identical with opinion, Mr. Proudhon was led to say, quote, it is proved that it is the free will of man which gives rise to the opposition between use value and exchange value. How can we solve this opposition whilst maintaining free will? And how can we sacrifice this without at least sacrificing man?" End quote. Volume 1, page 51. Thus then there is no result possible. There is a struggle between two incommensurable powers, so to speak, between utility and choice, between the free purchaser and the free producer. Let us examine these things a little more closely. Supply does not represent utility exclusively, demand does not represent choice exclusively. He who demands does not also offer a product of some kind, the representative sign of all products, money, and in supplying this does he not, according to Mr. Proudhon, represent utility or use value? On the other hand, he who offers, does he not also demand a product of some kind, or the representative sign of all products? Does he not thus become a representative of choice, of the value of choice, or exchange value? A demand is at the same time an offer. An offer is at the same time a demand. Thus the antithesis of Mr. Proudhon, in simply identifying supply and demand, the one to utility, the other to choice, rests merely on a futile abstraction. What Mr. Proudhon calls value of utility, other economists, with as much reason, call value of choice. We will only cite Storch. Cours d'économie politique, Paris, 1823, page 88 and 99. According to him, those things are called wants, of which we feel the want those things are called values to which we attribute value most things only have value because they satisfy wants engendered by choice opinion as to our wants may change then the utility of things which expresses only the relation of those things to our wants may change also natural wants themselves change continually what variety there is for instance in the objects which serve as the staple food among different people the struggle is not really between utility and choice it is between the saleable value demanded by him who wishes to sell and the saleable value offered by him who makes the demand who wishes to buy the exchangeable value of the product is each time the result of these contradictory appreciations In a final analysis, supply and demand bring together production and consumption, but production and consumption based upon individual exchanges. The product offered is not utility in itself, it is the consumer who verifies its utility, and even when its quality of utility is recognized, it is not exclusively utility. In the course of production it has been exchanged against all the expenses of production such as raw material working people's wages, etc., all things which are saleable values. Thus, the product represents in the eyes of the producer a sum of saleable values. What he offers is not merely an object of utility, but above all, a saleable value. As to demand, it can only be effective on condition that it has, at its disposal, some means of exchange. These means themselves are products, saleable values in supply and demand then we find on one side a production which has cost some saleable values and the desire to sell on the other some means which have cost some saleable values and the desire to purchase mr proudhon opposes the free purchaser to the free producer he has given to the one and to the other some purely metaphysical qualities. This it is which makes him say, quote, It is proved that it is the free will of man which gives rise to the opposition between use value and exchange value. Quote. The producer, from the moment that he has produced in a society based on the division of labor and the exchange of commodities, and that is the hypothesis of Mr. Proudhon, is forced to sell. Mr. Proudhon makes the producer master of the means of production, but he will agree with us that it is not upon his free will that his means of production depend. Further, these means of production consist largely of products which come to him from without, and in modern production he is not even free to produce whatever quantity he likes. The actual degree of development of productive forces obliges him to produce on such and such a scale the consumer is not more free than the producer his choice depends upon his means and his wants the one and the other are determined by his social position which itself depends upon the entire social organization thus the worker who buys potatoes and the kept woman who buys lace follow the one and the other their respective choices but the diversity of their choice is explained by the difference in the positions which they occupy in the world a difference which is the product of the social organization. Is the entire range of wants based upon choice, or upon the whole organization of production? In most cases, wants spring directly from production or from a state of things based upon production. The commerce of the world almost entirely turns upon wants arising not from individual consumption, but from production. Thus, to take another example, does not the need for notaries presuppose a given civil right which is only an expression of a certain development of property that is to say production for mr proudhon it is not sufficient to have eliminated from the relation of supply and demand the elements of which we have just spoken he pushes abstraction to the farthest limits in confounding all producers in a single producer all consumers in a single consumer and in establishing the struggle between these two chimerical personages but in the real world matters go otherwise the competition between those who offer and the competition between those who demand forms a necessary element of the struggle between buyers and sellers from which saleable value arises after having eliminated the cost of production and competition mr proudhon can at his ease reduce to absurdity the formula of supply and demand Quote, Supply and demand he says are nothing but two ceremonial forms serving to set before each other use-value and exchange value and to effect their reconciliation. They are the two electric poles which, when put into relation with each other, produces the phenomenon of affinity called exchange volume one page forty nine and fifty This amounts to as much as saying that exchange is only a ceremonial form. To bring face to face the consumer and the object of consumption, as well say that all economic relations are ceremonial forms, serving as intermediaries to immediate consumption. Supply and demand are relations of a given production, neither more nor less than are individual exchanges. Of what, after all, then, does Mr. Proudhon's dialectic consist? In substituting for use value and exchange value, for supply and demand, some abstract and contradictory notions such as scarcity and abundance utility and choice a producer and a consumer both of them chevaliers of free will and to what as the result of all this does he come to arrange the means of introducing later one of the elements which he had excluded the cost of production as a synthesis between use value and exchange value it is thus that in his eyes The cost of production constitutes synthetic value or constituted value. End of Section 1. Opposition of Utility Value to Exchange Value